Thanks for tuning in to the Banner Church Podcast, recorded live in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona. For more information, visit banner.church today. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. Man, excited, thankful for our worship team and leading us this morning. The chance to praise God. Thankful for Gillian and all of her amazing woos. Amen. Uh, man, this is a great week. You've joined us on an awesome week here at Banner Church. This is the week that we launch small groups. So we always have seasons going of small groups and, and different times, and this is the week that they begin. I know we got some, I think tomorrow night, there's some small groups, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, all, all kinds. There's small groups all the time. Uh, some incredible groups. We got financial peace. or Like Patrick said, there's a great prayer group. There's a young professionals group. There's some incredible groups. I, I'm doing a group with the Frankies on uh, Wednesday. Wednesday night, really talking about uh, going through a book called Evangelism in Exile. How do we really engage a culture that is so different, really, than, than the biblical culture that, that we're set to model? And what does that look like? And so we're going to be practicing some of that. And that's part of kind of how we're rethinking even uh, Love the Block and how we're ministering. We're constantly renewing and renewing vision and believing for more. Amen. Well, hey, uh, on your seat, you should see one of these. If one of these are on your seat, would you just wave so I make sure everyone got one? Uh, just grab this out. Yeah, okay, everyone's got one. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Uh, you can just save that for later. We're not going to do anything with it right now, but just save it. It's a really simple card. I don't know if you're a visual person. I'm a visual person, so, so I almost fall off the stage, and you could visualize that. Uh, visual person, and so we made that. But hold on to that. We'll talk about that a little bit later. I do. I, I think I saw that the Knicks are here. Awesome Chandler's back there, and Cohen's in the the mother's lounge, and Kelly. But they have an amazing baby. We're so thankful for them and uh, for being here. And just say hi to them when whenever he's awake and not in there. So that's reasonable. Uh, we love we love uh, all the awesome little babies that are always being born here at Banner Church, which is uh, why uh, if you don't know, we're working on selling this building and buying a new space so we can fit more babies in. So keep having babies. Let's keep growing the kingdom, <laughs> uh, literally. Uh, but excited today, we're. At the end of our series called The Lost Art of Friendship, uh, next week we're going to be jumping into a, a time of, of rest and talking about the presence of God. I think there's nothing better than on Labor Day weekend to talk about rest, right? So if you're one of those people, you're like, man, I feel a little exhausted. I, I think next week is going to bless your life with some encouragement, with some enrichment, and some joy. So be a part of that. But today we're going to finish our series called The Lost Art of Friendship. I want to begin today by just asking you a very simple question. How many loyal, committed friends do you have? How many deep relationships, how many people in your life are, are you really connected to in a deeper way? Now, statistically, and we've talked about this in the series, but statistically, we know that most people in Western culture in America right here today do not have many or even some or even one of those relationships, but we all in some way want them. And we've talked about this before, so I won't rehash it, but it's important for us to even subtly remember that scientifically we know through studies that as human beings we need relationships that physiologically that in our in our being mentally physically we need relationships that loneliness is not good for us 
But what we've also looked at is that spiritually, we need relationships. That spiritually, it's not good to be alone. How many of you know that? Amen? That spiritually, we need deep relationships. Yet, when we look at the numbers, it can be even overwhelming to recognize that there is an epidemic of loneliness self-identified in Western culture. It's not that we are saying as a church there's an epidemic of loneliness in Western culture. It has said it. So there's this big question then that's looming into our minds if we're created to have friends and we've talked about spiritual friendships and we've talked about even the, the brotherhood and sisterhood of Christ and we've talked about these deep relationships. There's a big question that looms over all of us, which is how do I make friends? How do I get these loyal, deep relationships? And as someone who pastors in a city where it seems that 90% of the people who are in the city are not from that city, can I tell you this is a very common conversation I have with most people. How can I make friends? Because many of us come from situations and places and, and, and life where we lived at one, in one place for a long time, and so we had a clo what's called a closed system of friends. We went to the school, same school together, or we lived in the same town together, or we went to the same college or the same work. But if you change that system, all of a sudden, maybe I was just good at retaining people and I wasn't as committed at making new friends. I never had to, right? Maybe you went to elementary school with people, or maybe you went to junior high and then high school, and maybe you worked at the same place for 10 years and you just knew people, but now you're somewhere new. And so you're asking yourself the question, how do I actually make friends? And that can seem overwhelming. It can seem like a big rock to push up a big hill. Sometimes you get far, and sometimes it just kind of rolls back and rolls over you. So I want to change the question today, because I think if we can change the question, then we can see a greater joy from the answer. And I don't think the question that we're really needing to ask is, how do I make friends? I think the question that today we need to begin to ask is, how can I be a friend? How can I be a friend? Often we, we can think that the answer to friendship is out there somewhere. There's a magic pool of people or a special moment that will define friendship. And in some ways it might. There might be a time of your life that galvanizes people together. There might be a, a moment where you're around more like-minded people. But these deep, profound, lifelong relationships, the answer is not out there. The answer is in here. And what Christ wants to do right here in your heart. Uh, when we did young adults ministry, 90% of young adults ministry is dealing with young adults dating because that's what young people want to do, right? It's like, I got to find somebody, right? And so 90% of young adults is just like having conversations about relationships and someone being like, I'm really into this person. And you're saying, are you sure? And they're like, yes. And you're like, oh, go for it. Or like people come to you and say, I feel like God's really told me I'm supposed to be with this person. And I'm like, well, have, has God told them? I don't know. Do you even know their last name? No. We'll start there, right? And so usually in young adults ministry, we would tell uh, people, listen, be the kind of person that the kind of person you want to date wants to date. Like, I just really love driven people. Then don't be lazy, <laughs> right? That's just kind of like how the world works, right? 
But a similar fact is true in friendship. We can want it to begin out there because it's easy to put it in a they or, or in a group. It's harder to look here, but the reality is the answer to how do I make friends is really how do I be a good friend? Because when we grow as a friend, we'll grow in friendship. Can I make you a promise today? If you grow today as the kind of person who is a friend, you will not be, uh, live without friendship. You will always live in a space of having a friend. It might be one friend. There might be a tough season, and that's okay. That's the reality of life sometimes. But there will always be a connection there for you. So if we want great friendships, we have to become great friends. So the question then is, what does it take to be a friend? What does it take to be a friend? And so today I want to look at two famous friends, Jonathan and David. Jonathan and David. Two famous friends in Scripture uh, that really stand out. We're going to look together in the book of First Samuel. We're going to jump around a little bit, so the words will be on the screen, but we're going to begin, if you want to join us in your Bible, in First Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. Let's pray together today. Lord God, we are so thankful for you and your word. And Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that our hearts would be totally open to you in every possible way and that you would minister and lead and guide. God, that there wouldn't be like a, a back closet in our heart that we refuse to be open to your working, but we would open every part of our heart to you, that nothing would be off limits to you, and therefore we would walk in the fullness and freedom of what you want to do in our life today. In your name, all God's people said? Amen. All God's people said? Amen. Okay, we can get 20% Pentecostal. There we go. <laughs> Let's read together 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. It says, As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit. Someone say knit. Knit, knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. It says, And Saul took him that day, meaning he took David, and would not let David return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant. Someone say covenant. Amen. Made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. It says, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servant. I love that scripture because there's this really profound moment of friendship. Now, we're going to talk about how they got to this moment because it's not just like, surprise, you're friends now, knit together. But that's a powerful thing to say, knit together. See, to be good friends, you, you have to be interwoven into each other's lives. To be good friends, you have to be woven your heart to be knit together. And it says that Jonathan loved David as himself. And from this moment on, they have a deep relationship really an exemplary relationship. So the question is then, what does great friendship require? What does it require to be a great friend? And I want to give you seven things here today. And these are seven observations based off of Jonathan and David. And this is not to say, and I want to give this caveat. I didn't first service, and I feel like I missed something here. I want to give it to you and say, this is not to say if you are not perfect in all of these, you will never have a friend. It's not what I'm saying. 
What I'm saying is these are the things we see as an incredible biblical standard of friendship. And they are a direction with which we walk and long and want to grow. And we invite the Holy Spirit to grow us in. And we say, man, I am not all of these. I am not fully prioritizing all of these things. But that's not to make me feel like garbage. That's to say, Holy Spirit, would you begin to move and guide and lead me in these ways? Are you with me? So don't leave saying, ah, oh, I'm not good at ah, I'm terrible at this. That's not the point. The point is let's talk biblical standard. Let's talk what the Bible says and then invite the Holy Spirit to move. So we're going to kind of start backwards like kind of BuzzFeed style. We're going to work from seven to one. We're going to do seven of them. You ready? Okay. Seven. Being a friend requires time. Great friendships take time. And great friends are willing to put in the time. You ever wonder, how much time does it take to make a friend? Well, I like to read. <laughs> so I have spent the better part of the past couple months reading studies on friendship and books on friendship and all kinds of resources on friendship. It might seem like sometimes we throw these together, but it is a lot of reading to put together and to really digest and look at uh, th this important issue. I think it's important. I think friendship is important. So one of the studies that I've read is how to make friends, and it, and it came out in uh, 2015 and then another revision in 2018, and it talked about how many hours does it take to make a friend? I'm curious, how many hours? Now, if you know the answer to this, you're, you also are like a data nerd and you like this stuff too. Don't say it. But if you had to guess, this is fresh in your mind, how many hours, someone just shout, do you think it takes to make a casual friend? Casual friend, how many hours? What is it? Half an hour. So close. <laughs> Okay, how many hours do you think it takes to make a good friend? Don't everyone shout at once. I know you're really fired up for this. <laughs> how many hours do you think it takes to make a good friend? Thank you, Gabe. You're a good friend. Thank you. Ten hours. I like that. Okay, how many hours do you think it's going to take to make a best friend? Best friend. A thousand hours? Oh, man, we went from like 30 minutes to a thousand hours. <laughs> I like that. So we're all over the place. I like that. Our dots on our graph would be a little crazy, but I like that commitment to extremes. Um, okay, so let me tell you, here's some data. It takes to develop a casual friendship, 30 to 50 hours. To develop a good friendship, to say we're good friends. This is people who identify themselves saying we are good friends. To make, to be good friends, it takes 140 hours. And to make a friendship where someone would identify and say, again, this is a study where they're collecting data, say, yes, we are best friends, 300 hours. So not quite a thousand, but a little up from half an hour. That's a lot. It's just for example, if you came to church twice a month and that was only your connection to people here, it would take you 8.3 years to develop a best friend at church. 8.3 years. But that's actually not true. Because, let's say, you know, hour and a half a month, all this stuff. That's great, except there's actually a window on friendship. Because the most important time to spend the biggest amount of those hours is in the first three to nine weeks of knowing someone and meeting someone. The next most important set of time is the first four months and statistically, if someone has not developed a friendship with someone after the first four months, it becomes increasingly, not impossible, but increasingly more difficult to develop a friendship. Why? Because you're in, like, the acquaintance zone. I don't know if you've ever been friend-zoned, 
but there's an acquaintance zone too. You're like, man, there's another zone, right? I wish we could just be acquaintances. It's not you, it's me, right? And the acquaintance zone exists, and we kind of know this, right? We know this in a sense because once you've been around, like let's take church for example. If you've been around Banner Church for a while, there's newer people than you. So in your mind, you're new, but in the new people's mind, you've been around forever. And you've seen people who are four months older than you have being a part of church, but you've seen them enough that now it's weird if you ask them what their name is, right? Come on. We've all, I work here, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot a name. I forget names. Be honest. Like, we forget names. And that's so awkward, right? I've seen you. People are like, you were, we were in a small group together. We're like, ha, huh, Joey? It's like Karen. Okay, I wasn't even close, right? You never know these days. But that four months is really important. Why? Because we get stuck in this space of not allocating time. Which as we look at the data of friendship, it's not that it's something we cannot overcome. It's just that it takes intentional time. There has to be an intentional choice by the parties involved to make friends once it's been a certain amount of time because there's a certain level of awkwardness involved. And I say all this to say it takes a lot of time to make friends. But it doesn't just take a lot of time. It takes a lot of intentional time to make friends. It takes intentional time to develop good friendships. In 1 Samuel 16, when Saul, this is before the moment of galvanized friendship that David and Jonathan have, Saul is being overcome by spiritual oppression. So he sends for a harp player to come sing, a worshiper, because we know that there's freedom in worship. Amen? Amen? And so he sends for a worshiper to come and to sing and David is chosen and David comes to play the harp and sing worship so that the spiritual oppression over Saul will leave. It's an incredible scripture but in 1 Samuel 16 21 it says David came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer and Saul sent to Jesse saying let David remain in my service for he's found favor in my sight. So David the shepherd is brought in to the palace as the armor bearer of Saul, meaning he's very close in the palace, which means he's involved in the business and the life of the royal family, which means Jonathan sees him function, right? Jonathan is the son of Saul. So Jonathan gets to see David play the harp. The spiritual oppression would leave Saul. He would be free, and the anointing of David will flow through this place because God was moving upon him in worship and the anointing of singing. And I think that's a powerful image because it's not like 1 Samuel 18, it was like, bang, they're covenant friends forever. <laughs> like He takes his robe off. It's like all of a sudden they have a covenant relationship. Jonathan and David spent time together in a place where the anointing was flowing. Jonathan began to see David work in his anointing and begin to develop a friendship even early on in this space because it takes time. Friends say, I have time for you. I will prioritize spending time with you. And I, and I just say this very boldly because this is the only world I live in is the bold one, is that you can get up from this church, leave this church, go to another church because you don't like that I say it takes time to make friends. And it doesn't matter. It still takes time to make friends. Your absence or attendance cannot change truth. And the reality is it takes time to make friends. It takes time. I was speaking at a young adult conference and, uh, you know, there's always those people, they just, they want deep relationships and I can see that hunger. I can see that hunger in them. And so a young person came up and they were like, what's your deepest fear? 
I don't want to do small talk. I just want to go deep. What's your deepest fear? And my response to them was, no. I'm not, I'm, who are, first of all, who are you, right? It's like, well, I don't want to do small talk. I just want to go deep with you. And I, and I can really, I can get behind that. At a small group, if you want to go deep day one, yeah, I'm down, whatever. Let's talk about it. I don't care. Stranger, minor, right? Like, I don't know who you are. We've not spent time together. What would it take for me to feel open to that? What would it take time, right? Why? Because there's an intimacy that comes through time because you begin to trust, you begin to understand. Are you with me? So if you want those deep relationships, it takes time. And I don't know how much time for you. We have the numbers, but it might be a different amount of time for each person because every person is different. But it does take the time. And can I tell you, it's probably one of the most worth it times of our life. It's hard to find the time, but man, when you choose to find the time, it will bless your life. It will bless your life. Okay, six. You still with me? Okay, I've made these all T's. I was taught, to, I was taught them as a, all T's, so I teach them as all T's because that helps me remember. And are you a preacher if your points aren't all the same letter? I don't know. <laughs> Not in the symbols of God, I think. Being a friend requires transparency. Transparency. Man, I think there's so many insecurities in friendship. One of the most common things I hear in talking about relationships with others is, well, people are thinking this about me. Well, I, I think people are thinking this. They're going to think this. People are going to think this about me. It's very, very common. We're very worried about what people think about us. And we often show people certain faces or versions of ourselves based off what we think they will think of us. What's interesting is statistically, we're very inaccurate at guessing what people think of us. Now, first impression's really good. 70% of the time, your first impression's right on somebody, so make a good first impression. But this is what's amazing. When it comes to strangers, right, people you just meet, 20% of the time, you can accurately know what they're thinking about you. You have a 20% accuracy. For your friends, 25%. For your spouse, 30%. So wives, listen, it's not that your husband doesn't know what you're thinking. He just doesn't know what you're thinking. <laughs> 30% of the time, he's going to get it right. But who knows? you got a long life together. The front part might be all 30%, and the back part might be all 70%. You don't know, right? It's, a, it's really a roll of the dice here. That's not a great number. If you were going to go to Vegas, I wouldn't take those numbers. 70%, you're not making money. I'm just saying 70%. of the, So 80%. So think of all the times that you've thought, well, they're probably thinking this about me. You have a 75% chance, 25% for your friends, 75% chance you're wrong. So if you had four thoughts, ah, they're thinking this about me. My friends have thought this about me. My friends are thinking this about me. And you thought four different things. Three of those are wrong. Just a heads up. That should, like, free your spirit to know, oh, I'm just wrong. (laughs) It's not that everyone's judging me. It's not that everyone's thinking about me. It's that I'm thinking everyone's thinking about me. But statistically speaking, they're not at least thinking what I'm thinking. I don't know. Maybe it's worse. You never know. Right? But why do I say that? I say that because when we are in this assumption of what people think of us, we pretend 
like we're something that we're not. We show people something. We show them a face. But here's the reality. People can't be friends with someone who doesn't exist. Are you following me? People cannot be friends with something that doesn't exist. If you show someone that's not really you, they can't really be your friend. And yet I think many people, we're kind of showing people what we think they want to see. At work, at church, on social media. I'm like, oh, here, here's what people want. But that's not who God made you to be. And yes, he does transform you, right? This is not an excuse for bad behavior. He does transform you. But he transforms you to be all that he created you to be. Are you following me today? Some of you, you need to get set free right now. Because to be a friend, you got to be transparent. you got to show who you really and truly are. you got to tear away those masks. People, do, people want authentic relationships. And if we are being inauthentic, we'll never create authentic relationships. And in fact, then in the moment when we decide to finally be authentic, we actually kind of like scare people away. Because they're like, whoa, that's not what I thought I was getting into at all. Have you been in a relationship like that? It's like, well, this is how I actually am. It's like, oh, that's not great. But if I had known that at the beginning, we could have learned together. David and Jonathan, they were profoundly different people. One was a prince, one was a shepherd. You thought of this, like, we say, oh, I can't be friends with them because, you know, we're so different. Literally, Jonathan grew up in a palace. David grew up in a field. Jonathan was the oldest of the sons said to take over the throne. David was the youngest of sons. And when they came to anoint someone for the throne, they literally forgot him. They were like, uh, uh, God, we got another one. Parents with multiple kids, you know what I'm talking about. Like, we have one, two, three, Joni, Jesse, John, John. Oh, David, yeah, David's watching the sheep. Like, I oh, don't worry about him, he's too short, right? <laughs> like, that was the reason, that is nothing. Jonathan was part of the tribe of Benjamin. David was part of the tribe of Judah, which isn't a big deal to us, but it was a big deal to them. Jonathan was part of the old regime. David was the new anointed king. Jonathan had his own armor. David had a slingshot contrast, right? In fact, when David goes to fight Goliath, I love this portion because, yes, the part where he's like, boom, and kills a Goliath is fantastic, and gets the sword and cuts off his head. You kill somebody with their own weapon, you're hardcore, right? I'm just saying. You dome somebody with a rock and then kill them with their own weapon, that's some Jason Bourne of the Bible stuff right there, right? That's like flicking someone in the head with a bullet, stealing their gun, like some spy stuff, right? It's amazing. If that, you know, Jason Bourne's enemies were nine feet tall giants from hell, right? It's amazing. But what I love is the moment before that. Yes, it galvanizes their friendship. I love the moment before that in 1 Samuel 17, 39. Because Saul brings all the armor and he puts it on David thinking, yes, this is what you should look like. This is what you should be like. This is what you should wear. And David says, no, that, that's not who I am. In fact, the words he says is, I have not tested this armor. What is he saying there? He's saying, this isn't who I am. Some of us, to be good friends, we need to take off armor that's not really ours and just be who God made us to be. Be who God made you to be. Because when he is who God made him to be, what does he do? He takes out the things he's been trained in and tested in and who God's made him, and he destroys a giant. And people might say, well, that's weird, man. You shouldn't take that. You shouldn't be like that, except for the fact that that's the very way God made him to be. Amen? And so when Jonathan sees David, he knows exactly who David is. He knows exactly what he's getting. See, great friends don't put up a front. They're who God made them to be. People don't want to be friends with a profile. 
People don't want to be friends with a brand. People want transparency and authenticity. All right, number five, being a friend requires triumph. Like I said, David goes out, kills Goliath. Triumph. See, great friends believe for God to move. They believe in greater things through Christ. Life is hard enough. We don't need more Eeyores. We need people who believe for God to move. Right? We need to believe that God is who he says he is, that his promises are fulfilled. And then when God moves, they share the victory. They bring others into the victory. They don't prop themselves up and say, look how amazing I am. They say, come celebrate. Come eat at the table with me. Come rejoice with me. And then when others win, they celebrate. They bring the balloons and the poppers, and they're just excited for them. Being a good friend means being excited when others win and when God moves in their life. I think we all have people, or I hope you have, or you might be able to think of some people that if you had to celebrate right now, you'd call them, right? And then there's some people that if you had to celebrate right now, you wouldn't call them. And it's nothing against them. It's just, there's different kinds of friends. There's those people that, man, they celebrate with you. Can I tell you, if you're someone who celebrates people, that's a great way to begin a friendship. I love this in Jonathan and David. You know, Jonathan, he's a warrior, tells us even before this that Jonathan goes up with his armor bearer and kills 20 men, kills 20 Philistines. That's an amazing number. And I know we live in the world of kung fu movies where everyone waits in a circle, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like in kung fu movies, when somebody's fighting, everyone's in a circle waiting. In real life, if you've ever seen someone get jumped or you've ever been jumped, they don't wait. Everyone goes at once. Some of you, we grew up differently. That's all right. They, they all go at one time, right? They all go at one time. No one's standing around like waiting for their turn to take on Jackie Chan with the ladder, right? Everyone goes at one time. If you go up to fight 20 dudes with swords, guess what you're fighting? 20 swords. That's a miracle. I say all that to say that Jonathan is uh, doing something profound and God is moving through him. Y'all still with me? I know it's warm, but we're moving, right? So when David goes out and slays Goliath with a giant, the giant with a, with a sling, with a rock, and cuts off his own head, he comes back in to celebrations. But look at what happens. 1 Samuel 18, verse 6. This is right before their friendship is confirmed. It says, as they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. I, I don't want to speak too much over the women of the city, but that was a bad move. I'm just saying, that's a, that's a bad move. You put my boy in a tough situation. Because if you come out in someone's king and you start singing that another dude is better than the king, that guy's screwed, right? You've all read enough history to know how succession works, right? So Saul is radically angry and insecure, but in contrast, Jonathan is inspired a deeper friendship. Isn't that interesting? We all know somebody who gets upset when others win. Come on. Some of you are like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you do. Look deep inside. <laughs> we all know people who just can't handle it. Someone else starts winning. They're like, they got hit with the yeah, but. You know those people? You start winning, you're celebrating, like, oh, yeah, but, you know, like, it's not always going to be that way. Like, no, duh, we're all going to die someday. It's all going to burn, whatever. I understand. But, like, can't we be excited for, like, four seconds, right, that God's moving? 
It's like, yeah, God's moving, but nothing's perfect. It's like, yeah, the earth isn't perfect. It's all going to pass away, and there's a new heaven, a new earth. Move on and stop being the Eeyore. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate that God is good. Great friends believe in God for victory and praise him when it comes. Jonathan's response to David's victory is, man, you know what? I've seen a guy. We've spent time in the presence of God, and I've seen him triumph. I've seen him believe in God to move. That's the kind of person I want to be friends with. People want to be friends with people who believe God to move, even, even if they're in the midst of struggles. Because number four, being a friend also requires trials. Yeah, we share our victories, but we also share our trials, our struggles, our pains. I mean, let's be honest, it's hard to imagine a good or great friendship that it's not endured hard trials. And it's really hard to imagine a good friend who will not walk through trials with others. In the story of Saul and David, Saul becomes increasingly angry at David. And so David flees many times, and Jonathan is seen, and all of her Samuel really interceding on David's behalf, and they're suffering together, and they meet in secret, and Jonathan makes a plan to discover if Saul will kill David. And at the end, they make a covenant together. Notice how that word is constant in the relationship. They have a covenant relationship. And Jonathan says, remember my family. Why does it matter that David remembers Jonathan's family? Because if you take the kingship from someone else's family and they want it back, then they're going to elevate one of those kids. So if you become king, first thing you got to do, kill all the other kids. That's terrible and awful. That's just the reality of history, unfortunately. Jonathan says, remember my family. And so in 1 Samuel 20, 16, it says, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Not me, though. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, and he loved him as he loved his own soul. And it says later at the end, when Jonathan and David knew that Saul's end was really directed towards violence against David, 1 Samuel 20 says that, David falls on his face and bows three times before Jonathan as a sign of respect and reverence. And it says they get up and they kissed each other and they embraced and they were weeping and it says David even wept more. And I think that's such a powerful visual. And I know in Western modern culture, especially men are really confused by the idea of intimacy. And so there's all these ideas that, oh, we're Jonathan and David, and this is horrible theology, but it exists out there. Were they some kind of involved in some homosexual relationship? It's it's really unfortunate because we so misunderstand intimacy that in Western culture, the end of all intimacy must be sex. But can I tell you, there's intimacy without sex and sexual attraction. You need intimate relationships with people. You need a deep understanding of them, an understanding of their heart. You need a level of intimacy, and we cannot be so afraid of intimacy. It's not even one of my points, but it's important. We can't be so afraid of intimacy that we abandon these crucial relationships. These guys went through trials together. They went through difficulty, and so they're embracing and weeping. That's what great friends do. Great friends see the trials of others and say, no way, you're not going to go through this alone. No way, you're not going to go. You're my brother. You're the one I, I weep with, I, I, I embrace, I stand with, I love, I care for. There's a deepness and a richness to our relationship. I will not let you go through things alone. Can I just tell you my prayer has been, Lord God, may our eyes be open to others. May our hearts be for them and for their trials and for their sufferings. May we not be afraid of intimacy. 
But may we embrace it. May we embrace intimate relationships as much as our culture is so confused about and profoundly wrong about intimacy. Can we embrace true intimacy in relationship and friendship? What does that take? Well, it takes number three, trust. Right? You can't have intimacy without trust. You can't have intimacy in friendships. You can't have it in marriage. You can't have sexual intimacy in marriage, right? Without trust, it's all important. That's why sex in marriage is important. It's about trust. The reality is if you're going to go through life with someone, they have to trust you. I, uh, I had a really fun friend growing up. Was this, this Russian kid, Daniel, and uh, he was so crazy. And uh, I always thought his dad was in the mob. And then I grew up, and I, I would tell people, oh, I think my buddy's dad's in the mob. And it turns out he was actually in the mob and went to jail for being in the mob. And so I felt very, very vindicated in that, but also sad for him. Um, but uh, this kid was absolutely wild. And I remember being young, and my parents, you know parents when you're not sure about your kid's friends, right? They were rightfully not sure about him. <laughs> and uh, he was like a crazy kid, and if you wanted to do something wild, he'd always be there. And uh, he'd always be up to no good, but like a lot of fun. And when I was a kid, that's what I wanted, to be up to no good and be a lot of fun. Pretty much through most of my young adulthood. Then I learned I could rally people towards Jesus. Anyways, not important, different story. <laughs> but I noticed something as we got farther in life and as I began to walk more closely with the Lord is that we were good friends, and yet when I needed someone I could absolutely count on, I wouldn't go to him. I can ask my, why, why, I was like, why is that? We're good friends, we hang out all the time, but how come I can't count on him? When I need somebody, I don't call him. And it was because there was something about trust in our relationship. We were united around a time and a place and a shared interest. But there wasn't trust in our relationship. I think many people have that kind of relationship. You're united around a topic, an idea, but there's not trust there. When it really comes down to it, can you count on your friends to be there? I'm worried about a whole generation that it seems is growing up with friends who at any moment can jump ship for a better opportunity. That you live with this fear, right? It's been studied that young people, this next generation, lives with a fear that at any moment their friends could pass them up for a better offer, that they would flake out or go on to something and say, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to be there. Can I tell you, that's a problem for friendship because friendship has an element of risk to it. Any intimate relationship does. Marriages have risk to it. People are like, are you sure about marriage? Yes, it's risky. All relationships have risk to them. Why? Because I have to trust you, and you have to trust me, and we have to risk and take that risk. That as I trust you and you trust me, you're going to know things about me. You're going to understand not only how to love me, but also to hurt me, right? No one can hurt you like the people you trust. Can I trust you to guard my honor? Can you trust me to have your best interests? And I think we see this in, in Jonathan and David's friendship, that it was full of trust because David had to trust that Jonathan would protect him from Saul, Jonathan's father. And in fact, in 1 Samuel 19, it says, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in a field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I'll tell you. That's a risk, because Jonathan could be killed for that, for, for essentially treason, helping the enemy of the king. But it was his friend. 
And at the same time, Jonathan had to trust that David would uphold his commitment to Jonathan's family. Now, to us, this might not ring as true, but I, but I think we can understand it at some level. It's one thing to trust someone with yourself. It's another thing to trust somebody with your kids. That's a good friend when you can trust them with the well-being of your children, right? And so Jonathan understands in 1 Samuel 20, he understands that, that time is beginning to pass away and that the end of his life will likely come and that he's likely going to die as someone who's advocating for David. And he says in 1 Samuel 20, 14, If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. He says, listen, I know the thing to do is to kill all, the, all your enemies, but please do not kill my children because we are friends. That's trust. Church, do you have someone you can trust? And are you somebody who can be trustworthy? Great friends can be counted on. And this is so important we make a distinction between being nice and being friendly. How many of you know there's a difference between being nice and being friendly? See, being nice is you, you say nice things. You're a nice person. You're kind. You're welcoming. Maybe even generous. You're, you're just a kind person. And to be a friend, you, you have to be kind. But you can be nice and also be flaky. You can be nice and also be noncommittal. Right? You can be nice and still be closed off. You can be nice and still have people not be able to count on you. See, being friendly is different. Because if I told you, hey, I saw your girl over there. Oh, she was just being nice to some guy. And I said, hey, I saw your girl over there. She was getting friendly with some guy. Those are different words. Right? <laughs> Why? Because friendly has relational intent. To be a friend, we have to be able to trust each other. With me, which means if you said you would be there, be there. Mind-blowing. If you said you would do it, do it. If a better offer comes along that sounds more interesting, but you've already committed to your friend, guess what you should do? Honor your commitment. Be there. Be a part of it. Be a part of it. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's tough. I've been trying to meet with somebody for a while uh, in, in the church and get together and we're friends and we're trying to hang out. We finally got a day and, and we met together and we were getting ready to hang out. Someone called me and they said, hey man, uh, I have these courtside tickets and I want you to come with me. It's totally for free. And I was like, when is it? He said, it's tonight. And I said, let me pray about it. <laughs> and immediately, obviously, I just was like, God, this is a great opportunity, but you know what? I told my friend that I would be there. And I know this is small and I know they would say, hey, don't worry about it. You should just go. But it's not about what they say. About, it's about what it says about me. I said, you know what, man? I, I know you're going to bless somebody with that. And I went and had coffee with my friend. And that's not to boast myself up, because I got other examples that go the other way, if I'm going to be honest. But I'm here to say we got to be the kind of people that can be counted on. Number two, being a friend requires thoughtfulness. Thoughtfulness. Any of you guys have those friends who are just so thoughtful, 
I have a couple friends like this who it's like I'm trying to beat them to the punch at being thoughtful. Like, you know those people who just think ahead? Some of you know these people. Like, you are thinking of something, a way to bless them, and they, like, show up to your door with it embroidered, right? Like, there's just these people that are so far ahead of you. You, like, don't want them to go out of town because they'll buy you a cool gift, and then you know next time you go out of town, you're going to forget to buy them a gift. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, they're, just, they're always thinking of you. They're always there. They're like, I, I love those kinds of people, and can, can we be honest? We love being friends with those kind of people. It's, you know, the kind of people that just love to bless others, that are always thinking of others, that are not selfish. In 1 Samuel 20, 17, like I said, when things are coming to the end, it says, Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because you might have read in the Gospels when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, your soul, your mind. He says, the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. There's something about loving others as yourself. And Jesus in John 15, 12 says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has none than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. See, thoughtful friends think of the needs of others. Their sacrificial love and action. In every way, they consider others greater than themselves. It's not that they put themselves down. It's not that they don't have boundaries or they get walked all over by people, but that they're constantly thinking of others and longing to make other lives better. Like I said, there's a difference between being nice and being friendly. Friendly says, listen, I want to learn and understand and become a student of somebody and learn what blesses their life. When I meet somebody at church, I don't want to just be like, hi, nice to meet you. Hope I remember your name. I'm like, man, I want to learn about you. I want to know what's going on in your life. I want to learn what God is doing. I want to figure out how can I bless your life. Great friends don't say, oh, why do I have to serve people around me? They say, how can I bless people around me? How can I serve people around me? Imagine asking someone in your life this week, how can I bless you? Maybe this week you don't have the time to set up a coffee appointment or to, to get together and have dinner with somebody or go to the park or whatever it might be in your life, but you might have five minutes you could just call somebody and say, hey man, how can I bless your life today? And it might be as simple as, man, I just, I felt frustrated today. I felt discouraged today. Could you pray for me? That's thoughtfulness. That's thoughtfulness. Don't you want to be friends with someone who's thoughtful, Right? So we got to be thoughtful friends. And finally, and most importantly, being a friend requires the Trinity. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Man, you guys can come up. This is because great friends are the kind of people that point others to God. They place God at the center of the relationship. Can you have friendship without God? Yes, you can. So if you're here, you're not a believer, you're like, well, this is kind of offensive. Are you saying, I don't have any friends? No, I'm not saying that at all. Just like you can have marriage w without God. Like you can get married and not have God in that ceremony or whatever you might have. But when we look at biblical friendship, biblical marriage, when we look at these things, we're examining covenant relationship. To have covenant, you have to have God. Are you with me? To have covenant, you have to have God. To be secured in the covenant of God, you have to have God at the center of the relationship. We need the love of the Father. 
We need the friendship of Jesus, and we need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit at work in our relationship. And the beautiful thing is that great friends spur each other toward God. Listen, we're not just here to meet some people in some neat social club. It's not that neat, and it's too early in the morning, for me at least. We're here to see the kingdom of God advance. We're here to see lives transformed. We're here to see chains be broken. We're here to see hearts renewed and lives restored. We're here to say your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in my relationships as it is in heavenly relationships. We can connect on sports and on games and on schools and jobs and hiking and all kinds of fun stuff. And I think they're fantastic, but the deepest connection is a kingdom connection. And can I tell you, if you want to be a person who's an attractive friend, be known as somebody who loves others towards their God-given potential. You're not like mean-spirited calling things out in people all the time. You're just encouraging and guiding and love people towards what God has made them to be. Those are the people. When I encounter people who love others towards Christ, I encounter people with friends. And that's the friend we all need, is that deep relationship that looks at your heart and says, I love you so much, I will sacrifice what it takes so that you might grow into all God has for you. And then your friend looks at you and says, I love you so much that I will sacrifice what it takes so that you could grow into all that God has for you. And you both say, amen. Amen. I love Jonathan and David, famous in the Bible, but it's not the only friendship like that. But when I read it, I know many people get envious. They want those friendships. So let me ask, do you have deep, committed friendships? Do you have people with whom you are interwoven and have relationship with? And are you willing to be the kind of friend and grow as the kind of friend that builds great friendships in time, in transparency, in triumphs, in trials, in trust, in thoughtfulness, and in the Holy Trinity. If that's what you want, I really, I really believe in moments today, church. I believe in moments. Because there's something about making a choice and, and really even putting our posture in alignment with what God's doing in our heart that I think is so important. You know, when God leads Israel across the Jordan, what does he do? He has them set up a monument. There's a moment there. God is a God of moments. And today, we made these little cards to be a very simple but important moment in our life. We could have written anything on this card, but I think what we wrote is important. I will be a friend. And I'm going to invite you, just, just grab that card if you would. And just hold it in your hand. <laughs> See, this is not an altar call or a response like, come forward if you don't have any friends. That would not be great, right? <laughs> I mean, you might respond. You might be that desperate, and God bless you if you are, because God will, God will honor that. But I think, again, it's right here. It's in our heart to say, I will be a friend. It's a personal commitment. And then it's trusting that as the Holy Spirit guides us and, and grows us and sanctifies us, that he'll build relationships through us and in us. So, see, first service, people did this. They just wrote their name they put it up here. Why up here? Because we as a church need to be united. We're the body. We do too many things alone in our own head with our eyes closed. Friendship is a thing we do together. 
And so today I'm going to invite you in just a moment to write your name on that. If you're willing to say, God, lead me to be a friend. And in just a moment, we're going to come up and just, just uh, thumbtack them up there so we can say and pray together, God, grow us together as friends. Would you just bow your heads with me in this moment? First and foremost, with your head bowed and your eye closed, this is the part you're doing, you and Jesus. The next part is us together. This part's you and Jesus right now. If you're here and you're hearing about friendship and you're hearing about this friendship rooted in God, but you do not have a friendship with Jesus Christ, can I tell you that today Jesus is here to be your Lord and Savior and to be your friend? He says, I no longer call you my servants, I call you my friends. Jesus longs for a friendship with you. Can I tell you, when you open up that friendship with Jesus, inside you find that there is hope for every future and healing for every past. And so if you're here today and you'd be willing to say, Jesus, I need you as my Lord and Savior. I repent of all my sin and unrighteousness, and I choose you, O Lord, and I long to follow you. Would you be my friend today, Jesus? Would you do me a favor? If you're committing to a friendship with Jesus, just lift your hand and put it down. I want to pray for you today. Let me pray over you. Jesus, I thank you that you are our friend. I thank you that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. God, that you cover us with your blood so that our sin right now as we repent it before you, as we lay it down before you, it is covered by your death. And God, you invite us right now, everyone, every single one, into the resurrection of life. And so those who said, Jesus, I long for you as my friend, I pray right now by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would reveal the depths and riches of your love to them, that they would know that they are secured in you, mighty God. Mighty God. Take this card. This is a personal commitment and just a great step for our heart. And if you're like me and you're saying, I'll be a friend. Not I'm perfect at all these things, but I'm willing to say, Jesus, begin to do a work. Help me to grow in time, transparency, triumphs, trials, trust, thoughtfulness. And even in my relationship with you, mighty God. Would you do me a favor? Just write your name right here as the band plays. I'm going to invite you, once you write that, would you just stand with me today and hold that in your hands? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to do this morning as we close. As the band plays over you and worships over you and invites the Spirit to move, I just want you to take this card and pray very simply, Jesus, help me to be a friend. Guide me lead me. For some of you, heal me. You have some friendship, hurt, and pain. Whatever it might be, take a moment, you and Jesus right now, and then when you feel like you've had that moment with him and you're ready to step into saying and committing, I'll be a friend. And all I want you to do while we worship who's playing is take this card. Come over here. You can watch me do this. There's this little cut. Take one of these. Just pin it right there. Go back and worship. Let me pray. God, I pray right now. Move upon our hearts. Holy Spirit, stir us up. God, help us as a church even right now. We say, we commit that we will be friends. And God, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would develop deep friendships here in this church like never before. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Thank you for listening to the Banner Church Podcast. We hope this message was impactful for you. Check the episode notes to visit our website, follow us on social media, and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you again next week.